It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. You can also listen on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. If you download the app and type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM and listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, no matter what time zone you might be in. And uh, it is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. Liz Marshall is a director, and she's here to talk about her latest uh, film, uh, premiered Hot Docs on uh, May 7th on CBC and CBC Gem and uh, the Documentary Channel. Uh, Liz, it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us. Great to be here. The show, Meet the Future, now it's a, it's a play on words to some degree, meat spelt M-E-A-T, and of course it's all about clean meat, uh, alternative meat, uh, meat that is, some people are saying it's lab meat, but in fact that isn't the case. But just to give you a, a little bit more uh, idea of, of Liz Marshall and the kind of things that she's been involved with and why this is probably the ideal kind of a project for her to have taken on. Uh, Liz has been involved uh, and she's an award-winning uh, filmmaker, uh, Ghosts in the Machine, which is kind of a, a precursor to this. Would you say, um, Liz, to some degree? Yes, I think all of my work is a precursor to this film. <laughs> Can you explain that a little more? What do you mean by that? Sure. So, I mean, for the last, you know, 20 years, I've been focused on documentary filmmaking for television mm. and for, uh, you know, um, like big screen. Mm -hmm. So I've this is my fourth feature-length mm -hmm. documentary, mm -hmm. um, but I've focused primarily on social justice issues yes. through character-driven storytelling. Mm -hmm. So focusing on, you know, having a, a human uh, anchor at the center of uh, the film, a story to follow, um, but really it's an entry point to explore bigger and global and urgent issues that we need to consider and open our hearts and minds to. So Meet the Future is really an extension of all of my work because it, from a social issue perspective, it brings together everything I care about. So it, it's about climate and the environment. It's about animals and the treatment of animals. It's about human rights issues and sustainability and looking at um, a solution. This is about a potential solution that could get us out of the mess that we're in now and create a sustainable future. And why did this become so important to you why, at, an, at a, you know, the early part of your, your career and your life? Why, why, why were you drawn to this? What made it so important to you? Well, in 2016, I was looking for what my next uh, feature documentary would be, and I knew I wanted to focus on a solution. Um, whereas the ghosts in our machine that you just previously mentioned, um, which had global success and exposure, it was released in 2013, is about a, is about opening people's eyes and hearts and minds to consider uh, the billions of animals that are 
essentially used uh, within global industries like food, like entertainment, like fashion, like biomedical research. And so that's a really, really big and complex, difficult uh, subject to tackle, not only because people um, are scared to face that issue, uh, because we're all complicit in it. Um, but, you know, finding um, a, a gentler way of telling that story is what we did with the ghosts in our machine. Um, and and it's, it's, it's character-driven. So it follows um, uh, an animal rights photographer named Joanne MacArthur around the world as she does her work. And she's a really sympathetic, um, kind-hearted soul that you... Um, connect with and and so through that journey uh, you meet the animals and so um, following that film I thought okay well that's a film that really was a consciousness raising film but now I want to focus on something that is about a solution that is underway and so when I learned about um, cultivated meat otherwise known as clean meat or cultured meat which is real meat that's grown from animal cells without the need to breed, raise, and slaughter animals. Um, I thought, wow, you know, the, the light bulb went off for me right away. And I thought, well, that, if that is viable, if that is actually something that um, can be regulated and consumers embrace, I think that could really be so revolutionary um, in changing how meat gets to the plate because most people in the world eat meat. So I started following that story in 2016 and the film follows a startup story, um, which is at the heart of the story and over three and a half years. Mm. And how did you find out about this? When did you find Well, and, yeah, initially in the media, actually, through, through the uh, news. Mm -hmm. um, Back in 2013, I, I read in the news cycle about um, the world's first um, hamburger that was created from beef cells, mm. so without the need to raise, breed, uh, slaughter animals. Instead, taking those animal cells um, and, and, and growing and harvesting the meat, so from the cell up rather, that, rather than from the animal down. That's the big idea behind it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's borrowed from medical science, um, you know, which is an established uh, procedure um, for, you know, saving people's lives, um, stem cell injection into hearts to grow heart muscle. Well, the main subject of Meet the Future is a Mayo Clinic trained cardiologist who took a very risky but passion-driven uh, career turn in 2015, and he co-founded Memphis Meats, which is um, uh, a little startup company, food tech startup company in Silicon Valley in California. And in 2016, I saw it in the, in the, in the press that they had unveiled to the world the first uh, meatball um, 
and they had a chef and, you know, they had Fortune magazine uh, doing headlines about it. And it, it captured the imagination of, of the world. And I thought, wow, I want to meet this company. I want to meet the co-founder, the visionary pioneer behind this. His name is Dr. Uma Valetti. And so that was how the story started for me, is getting access to him and his company and, um, you know, starting that really long journey of making a film uh, where, you know, I needed to get financed to make it. So thankfully, the documentary channel came on board in 2017. And the Redford Center is a, is a partner in this film. And, uh, you know, the Rogers um, Cable Network Fund in, in Canada. And anyways, uh, so it took three and a half years. And now we're releasing this film at the most prescient time. Mm. Um, it's just so timely right now to release mm. a film about a solution around meat production. Mm -hmm. I have to ask, when you, you so you said you, you said you wanted to meet, and there was a little, pardon the pun there, meet Dr. Uma Faletti, and um, you, did, is he the person you reached out to right away? Yes, he and is. So, so can you... Can you tell me, tell us a little bit about what that first encounter was like? What kind of questions did you have for him at that time? Oh, great. I love your questions. Um, so with a character-driven documentary or any form of documentary, uh, the sort of main pillar that is essential um, to ensure uh, an in-depth story is access. You need access to the people, to the places that they occupy. You need access to interviews. You need access to ways that you can be there as a fly on the wall with your camera to capture real life unfolding. And so it was, it was very important that we established an exclusive access agreement, actually. So meaning um, that no one else would be making the same documentary or you know, mm. having access to the same material that we were filming. And so that was the sort of first step in, mm. in settling in on the story. But that only was clear to me, of course, after a few in-depth conversations with Uma and learning about the company and what their trajectory was and also just understanding the, the, the details behind this big idea. Mm. Because this big idea is hard to understand at first. I'm sure that sure. viewers are going, what? What is this? <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, you know, the film is not a science documentary, mm -hmm. but the food science innovation is a really important aspect that we cover off in chapter one of the film yeah. in a way that is accessible and not too cumbersome, I hope, mm -hmm. so that viewers... Um, can understand, oh, okay, this is what they're doing and this mm -hmm. is how they do it, okay, so that the light bulb can go off. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we don't answer and get into every detail, the minutia of the science and technology because that would make it a very technical and very weighted down sort of science documentary, whereas Meet the Future is really a character-driven film about the movers and shakers and pioneers behind this big idea 
And I really wanted to understand why are they doing what they're doing? And of course, what is it that they're doing? Of course, that's important too. But why are they doing this? And what are the implications of this? What, what are the anticipated benefits mm. um, of it for planet Earth, for animals, for human health? Those are the things that interest me the most. And, uh, you know, I, I do like the way that you set that up and just described what you were saying about trying to bring uh, the audience into the, to the film to try to uh, break down some of those questions that everyone has. What, it, what is this? What are they talking about? Man, you know, is it, is it lab-built meat? Is it manian? You know, what's, what's this all about? But, and, and taking it into the, the, the hands of, as you're saying, the character, uh, Dr. Uma Valetti, great character on his own and a great story that you go into and, and even go back to his hometown where he was born in India and go to his school and see that presentation. It's great to see all of that and the people uh, that, that he grew up around and, and, and those kind of things. But uh, as you say in, in the first chapter, you're introduced to the team of people that he's working with and the people that he brought on board. And what a great team of people. And they're from all different backgrounds. Um, and it, they give a, a little snippet of why they are drawn into this, what makes it so compelling for them to want to get involved. And it, it really, that, that just kind of uh, breaks those walls down even more because you see these are, are real people with uh, you know, some, some serious uh, credentials that are involved in the project and and wanting to get involved. And then, of course, you get into some of the facts around the production of what the world is going to require in terms of meat in the next uh, 25 years or so. And it's astounding to think of how much is going to be needed from the production of meats to sustain people and how that is all involved with around uh, people uh, having greater wealth. The, the greater wealth that people have, the more demand for meat that they want to enjoy. And that puts an extra stress on uh, not only manufacturing of meat, but on our, on our environment as well. And uh, it's really a, a nice thread that you've, you've weaved throughout that story. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm so glad that it's all translating. And um, it's it, like I said, it's just come at the most perfect time uh, mm. during this health pandemic crisis, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. uh, the climate emergency, the climate crisis is yeah. something that is not going away unless we take major steps forward. Yeah. Whereas, um, you know, this pandemic, it will go away. We will, through human ingenuity and, and, and through the brilliant, uh, you know, doctors and scientists around the world, we, you know, will find... A, a, a vir the, you know, a cure or, mm. you know, a vaccine. But the climate issue is so enormous and mm -hmm. we can't forget that we have to make steps forward in terms of how we do things. So when we look at it, um, when we step back and look at the situation, um, you know, animal agriculture takes up roughly 45% of the world's land surface area. And meat consumption, as you said, is expected to double by 2050 because um, even though plant-based eating is on the rise and there's more vegetarians and people interested in veganism and things like that, it's still roughly, you know, 10 to 5% of the population of the world. So the vast majority of people 
probably 90% of the world is eating meat. And, um, uh, you know, with the meat industry in, in focus right now, especially in the news cycle, all the, um, you know, horrible news about the mm. workers and how, it, you mm -hmm. know, there's so many people that are sick and they're closing down plants and it's awful. Mm -hmm. We need solutions. And uh, what is interesting about this story and is in the film is that the meat industry itself mm. uh, comes on board mm -hmm. and invests in Uma's vision in his yeah. company, Memphis Meats. So Tyson and Cargill, the world's largest um, or two of the world's largest meat industry companies mm -hmm. invest in Memphis Meats, this little uh, startup company, uh, you know, uh, on the on the cutting edge of the next frontier. Mm -hmm. And I find that sort of twist and turn in the story really fascinating um, because it's not a story of disruptors taking on a giant villain. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's about uh, an idea whose time has come and the meat industry um, uh, CEOs going, yes, and the light bulb going off for them as well because they know that they mm -hmm. can't meet the demand and that the current uh, production methods are incredibly cumbersome, are incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's an exciting part of the story. That is the voice of director Liz Marshall. We'll be right back after this, right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Liz Marshall, director Liz Marshall. We're talking about her latest documentary film. It is called Meet the Future, and it, uh, docu it uh, premiered at uh, Hot Docs at Home on CBC on uh, May 7th. 7th, CBC and CBC Gem on, and the Documentary Channel. And um, congratulations to you, by the way, on this film. Uh, Liz, you know, you mentioned a few things there that were all, uh, you know, I guess, talking about this alternate uh, way of producing meat products in a time that we are stuck in this pandemic. And I hear a lot of people talking about not wanting to go back to uh, the normal we were in before. And, and, and as you say, this is very timely in this regard. Now, I, I want to ask you a question about the product itself. We saw, we've seen the film several times when they, they are showing, uh, their, you know, it's not just growing and, and producing these, this product. They are testing it. They have, a, they have chefs on board that, are, that, that cook the meat, that prepare it and, and turn it into meals for people to try. Were you able to try these products? Yes, yes, of course. I, and, I tried it. Um, and that was uh, an exciting thing to, to do. I, I, I have a, a water bottle from Memphis Meats that mm. says, first bite. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I love that water bottle. I hope I don't lose it. <laughs> mm. Because um, I'm, a, I'm 
a small pool of people around the globe that have tried something that is so pioneering Mm. and so cutting edge. And I will note that I do not eat meat. I mm. chose 30 years ago to stop eating meat mm. for ethical reasons. Right. I will never go back to eating meat, but I had no moral conflict within myself to try this meat at all. Mm. So ethically, I'm totally on board with, with, with it. I don't mm. need to eat it, right. and I won't. Right. But I was fine to try it, absolutely. Now, it's interesting you say that because Dr. Irma Valetti uh, also says something similar to that, that he chose to go off meat because uh, while he was, uh, he was working, I think, at the Mayo Clinic when he was in there and he saw uh, what was going on in, in the, the industry, uh, I guess. And, and that is something else aside from this that it is a big issue that it's the way we, we treat animals in this regard. And we see a little bit of that in the film as well about the slaughterhouses, about how these animals are treated. And I guess that goes back to, you know, your, your previous film as well, um, you know, about, and, and I wanted to touch on that, by the way, because I think one of the reasons that your films resonate so well with people is because of the, the approach you take um, as a director and the shots that you get. Um, you know, so many close-ups of the animals, you're looking them right in the eye, for instance, in that film, and uh, the ghost in the machines. And, and um, it takes you, it makes it personal for you. It makes it personal. And um, having, having seen that and having, uh, you know, looking at the way the industry is, is even just, just deals with the plants. You, even in this film, when you're seeing some of the, the shots, I think they're probably drone shots flying over top of some of these, these uh, uh, farms uh, where the cattle are housed in these, these big uh, corralled areas. And, um, you know, the chicken farms and all of those kind of things and the overcrowded conditions and all of those kind of things that you see. It, it doesn't... Um, it, it doesn't... Um, uh, leave you with an, a nice feeling when you see those things? No. And it's not heavy-handed either. Mm. It's factual. Mm -hmm. And it's reality. And we don't see these images because they're hidden from our view. It's illegal mm -hmm. to film inside industrial farming operations <laughs> in the U.S. There are heavy-handed laws mm. that will put you in jail. Um, but this is reality. This is how food and this is how meat is being produced. And it's so efficient and so innovative in that regard. Uh, the way the animals are engineered to grow larger and faster. Um, and, you know, their, their bones break under the weight. Mm. And uh, these are not happy conditions, believe no. me. Yeah. Um, so it's important to me to tell the truth but in a way where people do not look away. Um, so the approach um, is everything, but also the integrity needing to also uh, tell the truth. You know, mm. sort of the, the, the motto of my company, Liz Mars Productions, is, is, tr is truth, justice, awe, and wonder. Those are all things that matter to me in storytelling. And so... I love that you are familiar with the ghosts in our machine. It is our machine. Um, that's a self-reflexive title that makes us look at ourselves mm. rather than shaming and, and wagging fingers at mm. 
uh, farmers and ranchers. It's our machine. We are complicit uh, as consumers. We need to wake up, become conscious and aware of where our products are coming from and the, what the ingredients are and what are the conditions um, behind. Um, so that's really the essence of the ghosts in our machine is seeing the animals uh, as individuals, as sentient creatures that feel mm -hmm. that are cognitive, and they are. There's mm -hmm. medical science. There's all kinds of incredible science and awareness and consciousness now more than ever about the sentience of animals mm -hmm. and we are animals too mm -hmm. so it's about waking up to this i believe and um it's a big huge issue and question for people and it takes time but most people love animals most mm -hmm. people love their dog and cat and mm -hmm. you know wildlife mm -hmm. but this is not about dogs cats and wildlife this is about the industries where these animals are hidden and used uh, for um, food and and other uh, industries but but anyways about meet the future mm. it's important to understand the reality today of industrial farming mm -hmm. and um, the film is not heavy-handed, it's not gory, it's not going to make you shut off and sh turn away. It's done in a way that draws you in and makes you understand and see uh, the truth. Mm -hmm. We need to understand the truth before we can open our eyes and minds to solutions, to alternatives, to... Uh, ways forward and like I said earlier what is exciting to me about the story and about the film is that the meat industry itself so Cargill and Tyson mm -hmm. um, for example are on board they're invested in Uma Valetti and his small company Memphis Meats yeah and then what happens over the course of the three and a half years that we followed that story um, tracking the Memphis Meats startup story is that Uma rises in prominence yes. as a CEO, as a yes. pioneer. And he becomes a leader in this emerging field globally. And that was so exciting because how could we ever have predicted that mm -hmm. back in 2016? Mm -hmm. We couldn't. So that was another exciting development to follow. You know, it, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to bring it up myself because some of those developments that you see that you were able to capture in this process, uh, that's one of them, is, is his rise within that in the field. And, uh, but, you know, you just mentioned about uh, the meat industry getting on board. But you have a couple of heavy hitters uh, also investing, like Bill Gates and Richard Branson that come on board as well. Um, and, and, uh, and it's wonderful to see, and, the, and also the technological advances that they're making. One of the things that is focused, uh, not primarily, but it is the cost. It's about the, the investment in, in processing this and, 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 and getting a point to where it's going to be uh, available uh, to people at a reasonable cost. But there is a lot of investment needed up front in order to, to get this, this, this product uh, going. Yes. And so part of the story is that that benchmark of the cost of production uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, per pound. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, it was eighteen thousand dollars to yeah. produce one pound right. of um, of clean beef. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, over the course of the film, you see that benchmark come down drastically. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. I hope people watch the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll note that one of the final chapters of the film um, is Uma and his team are, are scouting um, a production facility because they've been in research and development mode. Mm-hmm. And the next step is to actually produce meat at scale. Right. Right. And open up to the public and have the public come and tour and see how the meat is being made and to demystify it for people and to say, look, you know, this is a very clean, sterile environment. Mm-hmm. There's only a few steps involved and it doesn't take long to produce meat. Mm-hmm. And to normalize that and make it um, accessible is is uh, part of their next step. Mm -hmm. So they expect to start selling their products at a small, at a small scale once the regulatory path to market is fully clarified. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in the film that the regulatory path is part of the story. So we were in those rooms in Washington, DC with the food regulatory agencies, Mm -hmm. um, you know, facilitating, uh, public talks and Mm -hmm. it was exciting to be there to have ranchers and farmers in the room and Mm -hmm. to have consumer groups and advocates and naysayers and it was also a way to get some dramatic tension into the film (laughs) and to hear other diverse uh, viewpoints Mm -hmm. about this Mm -hmm. so that's a really great scene in the film and uh, and then you know the question everyone asks is, well, when will it be available in meaningful quantity, Mm -hmm. you know, like in grocery stores? Mm -hmm. Well, this is why the construction of their first pilot production facility is an important next step for them. Um, And by the way, there's, I think, about 50 startups that have popped up all over the globe now. So in almost every country around the globe or every continent, there's... uh, there, there are startups that are innovating, um, um, making meat and fish and seafood mm-hmm. and from animal cells, from cell culture. Yeah. So um, this is really the genesis phase of a movement. And so the film is really chronicling the uh, genesis phase of that. And it, so it's timeless in that, in that way. Yeah, Absolutely. I think you touched on on a couple of the points there about <clears throat> the poultry, not only the the meat but the fish um, and those kind of things as well. Uh, because at one point I was wondering about that as I was watching it, I thought this is all being focused primarily on beef and 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 chicken and and uh, and and um, uh, pork, but uh, uh, it does come up and, and talk eventually about uh, the fish as well. Um, Liz, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and what a great documentary you've, you've brought out uh, once again. Congratulations on this. Oh, thank you so much. I'd like to just quickly add one very important and relevant point, Please which do. is that this innovation, cell-based meat, that's another term mm-hmm. that it's referred to as, could also help prevent future health pandemics like COVID-19. Mm. So to explain that, you know, 
everyone's talking about wet markets, mm-hmm. but animals yep. that are packed together yep. uh, in confinement uh, is a breeding ground for foodborne zoonotic disease. Absolutely. So otherwise referred to as zoonoses. Yep. So growing meat from cells bypasses the breeding confinement and slaughter of animals. And that could limit the risk to public health. So yep. this is also very relevant and timely and urgent now in the face of what we're dealing with globally. Uh, Liz, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today and talking about your latest documentary film, Meet the Future. Congratulations on this and all the best in the future. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It was great talking to you. Take care. All right, you too. Take care. And that is the voice of director uh, Liz Marshall. She is, uh, her latest film is called Meet the Future. That is M-E-A-T. And um, look forward to hearing more about this. I'm sure you should uh, check this out for sure uh, to see what she is doing with this film. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And that is this part of the show. But we'll be right back after this right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And of course, you can always uh, listen on our website. And if you happen to have missed part or one of our uh, previous conversations, interviews, you can also uh, find that on our SoundCloud. I'd like to welcome uh, my next guest to the show today. It's a pleasure to have uh, Stephen Harrington. He is uh, the uh, Deloitte's national lead uh, for workforce strategy, and he is here to talk with us about the future of work, what not, not only what that will look like post-pandemic, but just in general in terms of of how the future is being shaped uh, much as it was may, maybe by the Industrial Revolution. We have a new, uh, a new revolution on our hands. Many people will be uh, familiar with this in terms of the kind of uh, situation that we have going with uh, AI and all of that kind of stuff that's going on. And um, so he's here to talk to us about this new revolution. So it's, it's, uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Stephen to the show. Thanks for having me. The intelligence revolution, Stephen, future-proofing mm. Canada's workforce. Uh, I had a look through, of course, the uh, the the information I was sent, and uh, you know, it's just a little bit of light reading, <laughs> <laughs> but fascinating stuff, of course. Now, some of it, you know, seems fairly, uh, you know. Um, basic in terms of what we might expect to see and what we are already going through. I did, I did think, though, that um, there were some, some really interesting information regarding uh, some, of the, some of the graphs that show what is happening right now. And, and we'll get into that in a, in a little bit. But perhaps you could, you could tell us uh, why uh, you and Deloitte decided to look at this and, and uh, want, to, want to get a sense of what is going to be available for Canada in the future. Mm. That's a great question. I, you know, I, I've been writing about the future of work and, and speaking on the topic since 2011, mm. which, you know, when I think about it, when you're 
speaking and writing about the future, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? Mm. Um, wonder if I got it right over right. the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the driving force for the reason we're asking the question, and that, and that paper you're referencing, believe it or not, uh, is already old from mm. this topic's perspective, <laughs> right? That was 2017 we released right. that paper. But the, but the prevailing theme has always been the same, and that mm. is we know we're going through this sort of revolution of technology mm. that's changing not only our, our private lives, but our work lives as well. And one of the main questions we're asking ourselves is how can we remain distinctly human uh, despite this technological revolution? What do, right? what, do you, what do you mean by that, distinctly human? I, you know, it, it, it's one thing that I've said, this might sound a little controversial, but if I look back at the work of the 20th century, a lot of it was not very human. Mm. And, and even today, we still have a lot of people doing things that are essentially robotic. Um, you know, maybe they spend a lot of time crunching data in spreadsheets mm. or removing data from one spot to another or repeating a dull task. The, the, the opportunity-focused way to look at this is what would work be like if people didn't do the robotic stuff? Yeah, we let the robots be the robots and focus humans on, 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 on what matters, which is connecting with people. I just got a vision of a really nice beach. <laughs> sitting on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but you know there's it's true but there's a lot of work if you if you really take the time and we do some of this work with clients to take jobs today and you break them down to tasks mm. when you look at those tasks there are a there are a number of them that fit the description i just mm -hmm. gave you mm -hmm. but there's the majority don't the majority actually are about the way we interact with each other the way we share information and add value there's actually still a lot of work to do, but it's about getting people to do the, the right work um, that matters to them and, and matters to citizens and customers. And, and, it, and, yeah. and as you go through this in, in intelligence revolution that you're, you're talking about with the paper again, um, we, we see how you, you're breaking it down in terms of the artificial intelligence and the cobots uh, that are going to be influencing and, and becoming part of the future, which they already are. I've gone to a number of conferences uh, in the last couple of years already where I've been greeted by robots. Um, you know, and, and those kind of things that are already able to, in some point, at some uh, level, uh, direct you or, or have interaction with you. So I guess what you're talking about now is, is how that, that, you know, being inherently human is that creative stuff, that, uh, the stuff that, the, the reasoning, uh, those kind of elements that, that uh, a, a, being, a human being can bring. Yeah, that's an important part of it. it you know, you're, you're making me think, though, the other important part of it is is, is being broad in your thinking. So, mm. you know, it's, it's great to be a specialist. Mm -hmm. um, many of us are. But the human advantage in comparison to even the best artificial intelligence in the world is how you take that specialization and you're able to apply it in multiple different contexts. So, you know, think for an example of a contractor who builds houses. And maybe he knows his bit you know maybe he does the framing but the best people in that job know not only the framing they actually know how the whole house comes together you can turn to them on the work site mm -hmm. with, with questions and they can answer them there's no technology that can do that so you know if you're sitting at home and wondering what's what's the future for me that's my advice is 
Look at what you're really good at and then begin to think about how that connects to what other people are good at and build those connections. Cause that's, that's, I think what, what employment's going to be about in the future. Hmm. Now in saying that, that kind of leads me into the, um, the archetypes that you refer to um, mm-hmm. for the new workforce. And uh, you have listed uh, about what, eight of them, I think here. Uh, protector, innovator, influencer. We've seen a few of those online. <laughs> um, integrator. Um, we have the uh, scorekeeper, the performer, the builder, and the curator. Right. So how did you guys come up with that idea to, to put them into those categories? <clears throat> well, you know, the, the funny part of the story is what I asked the team to do initially from a research perspective is to tell me what the jobs of the future were going to be. Mm. Um, and I think probably the the Deloitte member firm wants their money back for that wasted time. We couldn't, <laughs> uh, we couldn't, of course, just magically figure out what the jobs five years from now would be. But so we, we retreated and said, well, wait a minute, what if we looked at the whole Canadian employment market and we tried to roll it up a level to common types of work that mm. people do? And those are those are the archetypes we came up with. And they seem to make sense, uh, you know, when you look at them and you think about the interaction between cobots uh, and artificial intelligence, um, the, these kind of things that you, you are pointing to with, with these kind of new uh, um, archetypes uh, seem to, you know, seem to work well with at least that idea of going into the future. Now, you know, somewhere in here, there's, there's a, a comment made about that you know we're either already here or uh it's maybe 50 years or so away you know with this kind of interaction and this kind of thing that's going to be happening there's also a comment made about how that right now this is already causing uh issues within the workforce and within uh the way we are operating uh which i i found both those comments pretty interesting uh because they they both seem to make some sense yeah, well, look, look no further than what's going on with COVID right now. Mm. Um, you know, in the U.S., just as an example, some data sources have suggested only 3% of employees pre-COVID were ag- able to regularly work from home at least 50% of the time. Mm. You fast forward now, uh, and late, the latest numbers from Gallup show 88% of organizations have asked people to work from home. Mm-hmm. That is just an incredible shift. It's sort of like a, a one-way door to the future, mm-hmm. we think, mm-hmm. that's, that's really forced people, hundreds of millions of people, to think differently about the way they work. Right. And it's all connected to this sort of broader question of how do we shift work itself? Yeah? Yeah, and probably it, it will, as we've already seen, and as you pointed out, uh, businesses are, are saying, you know, stay home to work, but now some are saying stay home permanently to work. You're not, you know, you don't even have to come back to the office. So that again will, I imagine, make, make changes in terms of how technology uh, is going to interact with this new kind of normal that we're looking at. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, I've, I've, I've pushed so long to, to get that 3% number up. Mm. <laughs> but now, you know, typical of humans, we went from 3% to 88%. There doesn't seem to be any happy medium. Well, well, and so I find myself actually talking more often now about how we have to be really careful to design the way that remote work operates in the future to consider the human. 
Right. Um, you know, we've known for a long time that there are trade-offs in that kind of remote work, isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it can be harder to balance and you know, build and maintain your culture. And, and not only that, uh, one thing that we've talked about in Canada for a very long time is it's, it's not distributively fair. There are so many Canadians that don't have access to high-speed internet mm. in, in rural or remote areas, and we've got to fix that fast. If yep. we think this is the kind of economy we want to build, right? And 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 I'm sure that I'm sure there's people out there working on those things right now. There are. We've seen some really positive moves recently from the the the, the government in Ontario recently recommitting. Uh, the, the federal government is thinking about it. But um, you know, I've I have been bold enough in the past to say that amongst the rights that Canadians should hold, one of them is equal access mm. to data. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard, for an example, of Khan Academy, um, an incredible learning platform that's free, and anyone could go online and learn to be a programmer. They could learn all kinds of skills, mm. but you know, without equal access, right? There's not equal opportunity. Yes. One of the figures that are in this uh, article uh, that I, I find, you know, it's just generally interesting is um, the one that talks about the number of years it takes for a product to gain 50 million users. And you start back with the airline uh, taking 68 years, uh, moving up to the automobile at 62, telephone 50, electricity 46, credit card 28, television 22. And of course, these years are getting smaller and smaller. And just jumping to the very uh, top few, we have YouTube, it took four years, uh, which you think, wow, that's you know great. Then you get Facebook at three and Twitter two years. Yeah. Um, so uh, that connectivity you're talking about uh, I guess there's a couple of things, connectivity and the advance, advancement in technology that's, that allows things to go so much faster um, for for these kind of things to take place. Um, you know, uh, when uh, 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 computers, uh, going back to this idea of, of the interaction between humans and computers, and I also think of the film The Matrix uh, mm. when we're talking about this because... Uh, when a when a computer uh, is is learned something or, or or learns something or is given some information that it absorbs, it can then, uh, as you're pointing out, can pass that along to any other computer, and they're as knowledgeable as that one is. So that allows that that transmission to have happen very quickly. Whereas well, humans, when they're born, you know they don't they don't have that ability to transfer that on right now. But uh, in in the Matrix, of course, we do see that. Hey, I need this program, and they're loaded with it. So. Yeah, and you're 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 touching on a, a moment that many of the technology thinkers in this space will will say is coming. It hasn't mm -hmm. happened yet, um, which is the move towards a generalized AI. Tech thinkers will argue about whether that general AI moment is ten years away or fifty years away. Mm -hmm. But when it does happen, I can tell you we'll have to rewrite and rethink everything because right. that safety I told you about in that sort of generalized human thinking mm -hmm. will 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 now be susceptible to automation but for today and some would argue for a very long time that's absolutely not true and it's actually humans we need to draw those aha moments between different ways of thinking because mm. machines just can't do it
Right, and uh, that leads us uh, down another path we could go on. Science fiction films are great for for uh, looking at these things and exploiting them and, and taking an idea uh, and extrapolating that to say, you know, what if this were to happen? Uh, just before we go any further, I want to jump in and let everyone know you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And type in uh, 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. Our guest here on the show is Stephen Harrington, and he is a national lead for uh, uh, workforce strategy. We're talking about a paper that uh, that he wrote on the uh, in intelligence um, uh, re- revolution, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Um, Stephen, one of the things I'm wondering about is, you know, as we were just talking there, is how the curve that that is in this uh, paper that you wrote about how technology, you know, can is starting to get faster than I guess individuals and businesses can adapt. How 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 does that strain the system? Well, you were you were your reference to science fiction made me think about one of the big issues, which we, which actually, again, is quite topical uh, as we tackle COVID and that is ethics in the future of work. Mm, sure. um, like to the point you raised earlier, the, the speed with which new technological options are coming at us, don't leave us as much time as we used to have to think through the ethical mm. implications of these technologies. Right. Um, you know, right now we have many clients who are for very good reasons thinking through what type of technologies they can use for tracking and tracing um, and the enforcement of social distancing, which are, are mm-hmm. so, like, you know, on the one hand, so important to health outcomes and to our collective safety. But on the other, we do have to, at the same time, as much as we can find time to ask the questions about privacy and ethics right. uh, related to those technologies. I, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of those questions coming our way. And, and need public dialogue to, to make sure that everybody's comfortable with the, the sort of business and, and social fabric we're building as a result. Yeah, that ethics question you just you just mentioned, uh, it, it sounds like technology is going to make us uh, think a lot more about that in, in many ways. You know, you, you think about how the general public uses social mediums and uh, people you know we hear a lot of we hear a lot of comments about people using it they just throw it out there they don't they don't necessarily think about uh they think they don't think about it before they type <laughs> so they're they're thinking out loud sort of but what they're not realizing is that it's it's going out there and people can see it and by the time it's there it's there and uh without just like you said we're not taking that time to think first before we react and i guess to some degree that that technology about tracing and, 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 and tracking and those kind of things that you were referring to. Uh, I, I read an, another book about, about what is happening in China right now, I guess, face recognition um, and, and all of the things they're doing with social me- media that is, uh, 
that is tracking people's lives and can either make their life better or, or worse if they're not getting great ratings from other people and other things. Uh, it can, can inhibit their ability to move, advance work from, from a work perspective, a, a travel, uh, you know, get a, a better uh, bank uh, uh, percentage rate for if they're going for a loan. Uh, it seems uh, crazy, but that's what's happening here. Yeah, and, and what's difficult about all these questions is that, you know, these these technologies and solutions come into place because they can do be good. Right. <laughs> there are really um, generous benefits if we deploy the technologies right. the right way. Right. We just have to take the time to think about the trade-offs on the other side. And I, I think as a principle, not only think about the trade-offs, but be transparent about them with the customers or citizens or employees that are interacting with those systems mm. so they can make their own decisions. Um, about whether they appreciate the benefits and they want to be in or whether they want to opt out. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It comes back to us again, uh, being reasonable people and reasoning because the technology will do what we ask it to. It doesn't have that conscience uh, to ask the same questions. That's right. But, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation is a good sign, isn't it? Um, I, I do think that this topic will be a topic that will, it is already within our university systems. I think mm -hmm. it just will become more and more a part of, again, another human role mm. for designing the future um, will be, will be people doing work around these ethical questions. And you kind of point towards the idea that, that, work in the future may not look so much like a steady job. It may it will look more like, I guess, self-employment perhaps or or doing, uh, um, uh, you know, short term uh, projects. Uh, you know, I think when I when you when I think of that, I, I think of how there are many people that have been working in that way for quite a long time. I think of musicians or, or artists that, you know, are that work from job to job or gig to gig, project to project. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm actually working on another paper with our chief economist here at Deloitte um, to dig deeper into the question of what's sometimes called the contingent workforce. So just think of anybody who doesn't have a traditional full-time role fitting into that very broad category. The most recent estimates I've seen is somewhere in the neighborhood of 35% of Canadians are in non-traditional jobs already. Mm. And this is not this, this particular trend is not theoretical, to your point. This is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually think it's an area where we need to do a lot of thinking about how we want to have that part of the employment market operate and what the promise is to people who work that way. Mm. Uh, just to give you an example today, if you're a contractor, even a successful one, it can be difficult to get things like a rental or a mortgage. Mm -hmm. There, there are some pretty simple policy changes that we can look at in the public and private sector to start to close some of those gaps. And what I hope for is a future where people can make a choice based on what they want, a full-time job with the benefits and security and culture that that brings, or they may choose that they actually want a lot more flexibility and autonomy to to maybe focus on what they care about more or to work wherever they want to work, whenever they want to work, so that work is doing a better job of fitting people's lives, mm. depending on what they need from it. 
Uh, Stephen, we're getting close to the end of our time, and uh, I want to ask you if there's anything that you think is really important that we haven't touched on on yet uh, before we go. But I also want to uh, come back to the thing you said right off the top, that, that this paper is, is already out of date. <laughs> um, why so? It's a, it's a fast-moving target every mm-hmm. year. I mean, I, I, I know I've mentioned COVID a few times, but mm-hmm. that's, that's currently what our practice is wrapping our heads around mm-hmm. and working with clients on is, right. now what? Um, right. it's, it has changed the landscape, so more to come. Right. I, I think the thought that I'd leave you with is I, I feel like sometimes we look at this topic of the future and we think, what's going to happen to us? But my, my hope is in Canada, what we'll start to say and said is, what do we want it to be? Uh, we're, we're at an inflection point right now in Canada because of COVID where we could actually really redesign the future. Uh, you know, look, look at things that we've just done in unexamined ways in the past and ask if we could do it differently. Like why in the past did we have almost everybody in a major city get up at about the same time and go to the same place? Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds silly when I say it that way. Right. And we, we need all design thinkers and all stakeholders to get together and think about what we want this to look like for Canadians. Right. Wonderful. Stephen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do so and really appreciate you bringing this, uh, this paper forward with your team and, and uh, uh, you know, being able to uh, allow us to think about the future and how things are rolling out, not only uh, here within uh, COVID-19, but as we look beyond and as we get back to a new normal, whatever that might be at some point. Well, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, Stephen uh, Harrington. And he is the National Lead for Workforce Strategy. He's been a writer and speaker on the future of work since 2011. And he's a co-author of The Intelligence Revolution, which is what we've been speaking about this paper, covering the implication of the future of work in Canada. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. See you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.